up here. Today I will be reading 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and 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 the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you who are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Kids, if you want to be dismissed to Children's Church, there we go. Head on out, have some fun, learn some awesome new things. Be excited to tell your mom all about it. Are you ready for me or not? You got more. Okay. <laughs> Good morning. I'm going to assume that I get some of that extra time from that song that we didn't do. So I got a few more minutes to add to my time, maybe. Good to be back with you all again this morning. And um, I just drove in this morning from North Kansas City. And um, sometimes that's, that's okay to do on a Sunday morning where you got to travel a little bit and then preach. Sometimes it's not, but it was, it was good this morning because there's a lot of opportunity for me just kind of as I'm alone driving to do several things in my mind, which may not be good because I'm not a good multitasker, but I did manage to stay on the road okay. And um, one of them is to not only, of course, kind of go over my thoughts that I want to present this morning, but also just to enjoy the beauty of the place I'm at, driving through the countryside of, of, uh, of eastern Kansas. And, you know, I've been privileged to go to a lot of places in this country to see a lot of beautiful things, but there's still something really cool about this part of the country, just to see the countryside. And to see that in the morning, driving through some rain, through some morning mist, and just to see the way God has created and painted a, a landscape, and to think about His control over all things and the way he knits things together and then I got to thinking about this church family 
a church family dear to me because of all that it's given to me in my life. And to begin to pray for some of you individually and to thank God for answered prayers and, and to pray that together as we come this morning that we all gather around God's word and we feast on it. And that you don't see me, but you see God a little bit more clearer today. A little more, a little more vibrant, a little more important, a little more glorified. And so that's, that's my prayer as we gather together this morning. There is a, a town south of Kansas City that uh, a long time ago, back in about the year 1868, was in search of a name. There was actually mostly just a post office there, but I guess back in those days, they'd put post office in certain places and then towns would kind of grow up around them, but this post office didn't really have a name. They were seeking for one, but couldn't quite seem to locate one they were happy with. Uh, They wanted to name it Excelsior, the postmaster Edgar Thompson, proposed that, but there was another town in Missouri that already had Excelsior claims, so they threw a bunch of other names out direction to the postmaster general, and each were rejected because they were already being used. And finally, in exasperation, Thompson wrote to the postmaster general, he says, we don't care what name you give us, just so it's something rather peculiar. And the postmaster general wrote back and said, done, the name of your town is peculiar. And Peculiar Missouri sits there to this day, bearing that name. And uh, I want to talk to you about another peculiar community this morning. And I'm looking at it. Now, don't take that the wrong way. It's not meant in a derogatory way. When we use the word peculiar, sometimes we mean that uh, oddball type of way. And I don't certainly mean that at all. It's meant in a uh, much different fashion. But a peculiar community is what we are. And we call it the church, and it's not just this church, it's the church. It's all of us who are in Christ, and we're, we're both of those things. We're peculiar and we're a community. We're peculiar in the fact that we've been born again and adopted by a God like no other. That makes us unique. And we're peculiar in the sense that we're rescued from death and sin by a Savior like no other. And we're a people who are called to a life like no other gathering of people has been called to. We are called to be a people like no other. We're inhabited by a spirit that is like no other. And so we are peculiar, not because of who we are. There's plenty enough peculiarity to go around, case in point, but because of whose we are. But we're also a community. We're a gathering. We're a collection of people. We are, as the word community suggests, a common unity. We are a gathered-together people of God's people possessing a distinctiveness that's intended to be lovingly provocative in our world. And it's my prayer that we will do that as the church. Because, you know, there's a false narrative that tends to circulate around our world which says that Jesus' followers are not all that different from anybody else in the world. And sometimes we're our own, uh, the, the creation of that, by trying to be too much like the world. In fact, the disconcerting fact is that research shows that, uh, especially in the Western world, especially in the United States, that the church sometimes is not really all that much different from the world, especially in regard to moral behaviors. If you begin to chart some of the statistics around divorce rates and sexual behaviors and generosity or lack of it and materialistic bent, we don't really score too much different than the world around us. 
And so we think, okay, well, we're different because of what we believe, and yet even that's beginning to erode as a difference among the people of the world. What is our distinctiveness? Well, it's to be a distinctiveness in regard to our life. That there is something different. There is something noticeable about us. There is something peculiar about us as a people that sets us apart than those around us. I remember coming across this story years ago. In fact, I I probably came across this story when I was serving here in this church years ago. So you probably heard this story a long time ago. But if if you can honestly say, oh, I remember when you used that story, preacher, years ago, then you can tag me after the service and and I'll apologize then. But it comes from the pen of Will Williman, who uh, in his book, What's Right About the Church, tells the story of a Southern Baptist preacher by the name of Will Campbell, who had an agnostic friend, an unbelieving friend, by the name of P.D. And P.D. has a conversation with Preacher Will. It goes like this. You know, Preacher Will, he said, that church of yours and Mr. Jesus is like an Easter chicken my little Karen got one time. Man, it was a pretty thing. Dyed a deep purple. Bought it at the grocery store, and it served a real useful purpose. Karen loved it, made her happy, and that made me and her mama happy. Okay? Preacher Will said, okay. He follows with the story. PD continues. But pretty soon that baby chicken started feathering out, you know? Sprouting little pin feathers, wings and tail and all that. And you know what? Them new feathers weren't purple. No, Siree Bob, that chicken wasn't really purple at all. That chicken was a Rhode Island red. And when all them little red feathers started growing out from under that purple, it was quite a sight. All of a sudden, Karen couldn't stand that chicken anymore. I think I see what you're driving at, PD. No, preacher Will, you don't understand any such thing, for I haven't got to my point yet. Okay, I'm sorry, rave on. Well, we took that half purple, half red thing out to her grandma's house and threw it in the chicken yard with all the other chickens. It was still different, you understand, and... The other chickens knew it was different. They resisted it, pecked it, chased it all over the yard, wouldn't have anything to do with it, wouldn't even let it get on the roost with them, and and that little chicken knew it was different too. Didn't bother any of the others, wouldn't fight back or anything, just stayed by itself. Really suffered too, but little by little, day by day, that chicken came around. Pretty soon, even before all the purple grew off of it, While it was just a little bit different, that thing was behaving just about like the rest of them chickens. It would fight back, peck the ones a littler than it was, knock them down to catch a bug if it got to it in time. Yes, sirree, Bob, that chicken world turned their Easter chicken around. And now you can't tell one chicken from another. They're all just alike. The Easter chicken is just one more chicken. There ain't a thing different about it. Campbell says, I knew he wanted to argue, and I didn't want to disappoint him. Well, PD, the Easter chicken's still useful, lays eggs, doesn't it? It was what he wanted me to say. Yeah, preacher, it lays eggs, but they all lay eggs. Who needs Easter chickens for that? And the Rotary Club serves coffee, and the 4-H Club says prayers, and the Red Cross takes up offering for hurricane victims. Mental health does counseling, and the Boy Scouts have youth programs. Are we a peculiar people? 
Are we really different in a way that matters? Are we a distinctive body of Christ that has impact in the world because of that difference? Do we bring into the world something that no other people bring into the world? That's what he's called us to. I want to take you first to some words that Peter shares in his first letter, 1 Peter. And we're going to be in chapter 2, but just to set the scene real quickly, when you get to chapter 2, guess what? There's a chapter 1, and in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, there Peter spends a lot of time extolling the majesty and the beauty of the blessing that we've received in Christ. He, He lifts our eyes, if you will, to all that God has done through Jesus for us, that we have been blessed to be rescued from death and sin, brought into a life of holiness and purity, a life that is stored up for us, kept for us in heaven when all of its fullness will be revealed. He says in that first chapter as he talks about all those things that we have in Christ, this sets the scene for for who we are then as a people. And that's when he gets to chapter 2 and he says, Therefore this, then put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you. There's an honor in this that we've, we have this Savior. So this honor, he says, is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so if we kind of put our finger in that text right there for a moment, we sit back and think for a moment, we understand that we're set apart as a people, we've dared to place our trust in a unique Savior, a peculiar Savior, and we're beneficiaries of that unique gift that he gives us in his grace work. But then Peter keeps writing and turns the page a bit. He supplies some contrast. He says, but, in verse 9, but, in contrast to those who reject him, you're a peculiar bunch, he says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, this distinctive foundation upon which we've been placed through the work of Jesus Christ has given to us a distinctive life and a distinctive influence in the world. We stand out as different. And that's with intention. Note the words that Peter uses there to describe this, that we have, we've embraced this odd, troubling, problematic Christ, and because of that, we've been set apart by these descriptions. We're a chosen race. We're chosen. God has pursued us. We're the children of his choosing, and therefore we become this certain kind of race because he is our father and we share him together, and so we can identify under that banner of his fatherhood. We carry his image in us. 
And yet there's no boasting in that for us because he's chosen us. And then he says that we're royal, that we are royal priesthood. We have the DNA of a king in us. We've been given access to the court of God, and as priests, we have this opportunity not only to step into the presence of God and to express our praises to him, but we have this opportunity to step into the presence of those around us and extol his praises to them, announcing who this God is, this unique, loving, amazing God. He says, you're also a holy nation. You're holy. You're a counterculture amidst the predominant culture. You're set apart from all the other cultures in the world, a community devoted to God's purposes. And then he says that you're also a people for his own possession. The old King James Version, if you have it in front of you, that's where the word peculiar pops up. But the word is possessed here. It's, it's being owned by him. We are his possession. We are treasured by him. We are in him. We are protected by him, possessed by him. Within the confines of his being, we find our existence, and our preservation. It's as though God is saying that when I look over all of the masses of the world, I see my church and I go, oh, those, those are the ones, those are mine. Those are my children. And so we've got this unique, peculiar, unusual relationship to God, but Peter again is not done here. He's not saying that we just have this thing to kind of hold on to and relish and say, gee, look what we have. He says, this has a purpose for us. It affects our relationship now with the world. So how is it that the church relates to the world around us? You know, there's a lot of different theories about how that should work, and there's been a lot of different practice of theories throughout the ages of how the church and the world have, have existed together. And I don't know that any of these models that I'll just throw at you real quick is very good. Certainly you recognize some of them aren't good at all. There are some who suppose that the church and the world are just to be separate, that they're isolated, they're in two corners, and they keep to their own corners, and they keep to themselves, and they just stay here. Church, world, that's where they are. There are some who suppose that the model of the church and the world being together is it's the church plus the world, each having a role to play, interacting occasionally, living together harmoniously occasionally, when it suits the purpose, usually, of the world. We saw that displayed, I think, pretty well post 9-11, when all of a sudden the church became more important to the world for a time. And then as time passed, they kind of drifted away and said, okay, you can be silent again. We've got this. The world said we can just go on our own. Sometimes the model of the church and the world and their relationship together is that they're to be indistinguishable. Some have muddled them together that much that that the church has become worldly and the world has become somewhat religious and you don't really see any distinction between the two. You could walk from one to the other and never even notice you've walked over a new threshold. Some have supposed that the church-world relationship is the the church over the world, and we don't see that too much anymore. Those were in the days of Constantine when he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and it didn't really work out too well. When we find ourselves in a culture in which the church is kind of the power and the voice, corruption happens. We've seen that even in our own country over the last 30 or 40 years. Or some who say the model is to be the world over the church, that the church is driven in submission, driven underground, meant to be kept there under the foot of the world, and we'll let them go when we feel like they should be let go. Some view it's the church against the world. 
you know, the, the culture wars. We get angry about the way the world lives, and so we want to enforce our morality upon the world because we know what's best, because we are God's chosen people, and we have the authority of his word, and that doesn't always work so well. Sometimes it's reversed, the church influencing the world, and we've seen the church go through that time as well when we worry as the church more about being relevant and hip and cool rather than, number one, being Christ-centered and God-glorifying. And sometimes it's just the world influencing the church to where there's really no distinction. And I look through all those models and I go, I, I don't find one that's very good. In fact, even in combining some of them, I'm not sure we've got the whole picture. The church set apart, yeah, but planted in the world. The church deeply interacting with the world, but again, not polluted by it. The church and the world working together, yeah, that to a degree, but not in the ways that we often practice it. The church drawing the world to itself, yeah, but not to itself, not to an idea, not to a ministry, not to a program, not to a building, not to a cause, but instead drawing them to Jesus, yes. What is the model of how the church, the world, relate to each other? I'm not sure we're going to ever have a, a picture that we can, in our humanity, paint clearly, but maybe something like this, that we are medics in a war zone, that step up to those who are fatally injured and we can offer to them the gift of life through Jesus. And then we can take those who are beginning to be healed, these healed enemies in the battle, and then bring them together to a place of peace and a place of reconciliation. Well, Peter struggles a little to, to tell us what it's like, but he does a better job of struggling and being uh, eloquent with it than I could ever do. Because if you go back to the text in 1 Peter 2, then he begins to talk about what that looks like. After describing us as a, ro a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, he says, here's, here's why you're that. Here's why you're those peculiar people. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He talks about this privilege we have there in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He's digging right back into the story of Hosea. If you've got some time this afternoon, read that. You'll see that pop up in the naming of, of her children, of Gomer's children. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And therefore he tells them, then in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, because that's what we are. We are peculiar. We are set apart. We're never going to completely fit in in this world. As sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We don't fit here because we live by a different story. You see, there's a different story we've been written into, and it's a story about walking in a kingdom in which all things are being made new. We live in an alien land, and we're subject to the conflict against this alien land, and yet at the same time, we've been given this call to be salt and light here in the midst of a bland and rotting darkness, pointing people to life. 
And so we've got this very unusual place. It's not just that we're a peculiar people in and of that because of our God and our Savior and the Spirit who lives within us and has made us that. He's also put us in a very peculiar position of being in a world that's in desperate need of life and we're the ones that he is using to share that and to spread that message. And so what does that look like? There are a lot of different ways we could take that. How do we, as this peculiar community, become influential in the world around us? I think there's one distinctive trait I'd like to land on. One distinctive trait which has been given to us, and now we have the opportunity to allow it to flow out of our lives to the world around us, and it's really found in the divine love that God has showered upon us. The divine love that gave us life. On that night before Jesus was taken and crucified, as the world watched, he said a lot of important things, but one of the most important, I think, is in John 13 when he he says to his disciples, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And he says, this is going to be the mark by which the world knows you, by the way you love each other. You want a distinctive mark as a peculiar people? Love in that way. People who are loved and therefore love. People who have been loved in a way that the world has never seen anyone love before and therefore now love others in a way that the world has never seen people loved before. The love of God has changed us. The love of God compels us. And so let's start with that, where our origin is, that we are a people tremendously loved. We'll jump to another letter of another colleague of Peter's into 1 John chapter 4. We could go a lot of places in that first letter of John, but in chapter 4 he specifically talks about this fact that, that we've been given this unique, peculiar, if you will, love through Christ. He says it in verses 9 and 10 of 1 John 4. He says, um, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And John's very clear that this is nothing that we earned, nothing we could come about through any kind of purchase or interaction. It's something that's purely been given by grace. Because you see, God is in this position of looking to us as sinners that we are. And he, and he acknowledges that within his own being is this nature of holiness that requires that, that sin not be in his presence, and yet at the same time a God of love. And so he looks at us and he sees through both of those lenses of people who are sinful and deserving of his wrath, and yet at the same time, a people who he loves and wants to redeem. And so the only way that he can rectify those, those tensions, if you will, of his character, of his nature, to at the same time express his wrath against sin at the same time and be just and to love us at the, as well is to work through the work of Jesus Christ himself. He refers to him here in this verse, verse 10 of, 1 John 4, a propitiation for our sins. That's a big $5 theological word which just means something that turns aside wrath. He's been offered as this sacrifice who turns aside the wrath of God because he receives it upon himself that we can walk 
free. There's nothing we can do to earn that. All of our love toward him can't erase our due punishment. We could love God as hard as we want to, but until he chooses to love us, we're without hope. And so we're not loved because of the laws we keep or the rituals that we observe or the words that we use or the good deeds that we render or the company that we keep. We're loved because we have this peculiar God who relentlessly and radically has chosen to love us. And that sets us apart as peculiar people. But it also sets upon us an opportunity and a responsibility because we've not been given this love to treat it as an exclusive thing, that our uniqueness is now a country club mentality that says, gee, look what we've got, dying world. Don't you wish you had it? (laughs) We've been given the opportunity to express that same type of love that we've been given. Not to be a people that build walls and fences and keep that love exclusive to ourselves, but we're called more to be a people who build a table and invite a starving world to the feast and have them sit alongside of us as they're fed also by the grace of God. You see, these descriptors that Peter uses there, that we're chosen, that we're royal, that we're holy, and that we're possessed by God, is not something that we're to keep to ourselves. He intends, Peter does, God intends, certainly, that the battery killer, aren't I? I'm not sure what it is, but. And so we're we're called to be those people who will allow the chosen to become the many. We've been given this gift of love, and so we move from our origin to our destiny. That is, there's a people radiating the love of God. Because if you go back to that passage in 1 John 4, and you, and you look at the ends of it, kind of look at, as like a textual sandwich. We, we looked at the meat in the middle. Now let's look at the whole thing beginning in verse 7. I want to read it through to verse 12. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so he's saying, here's your calling to be those who love and Then he goes to those verses I read a moment ago, verses 9 and 10. Here's why, because this is how we've been loved. And then when he gets to verse 11, he comes back to that same idea that he did in verse 7 and 8. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us, or completed in us, or expressed in maturity in us. I go back to that text that I shared from John 13 where Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, there's this mark that you have upon you to love one another as I've loved you. And and I note there something interesting about the words of Jesus when he says to them, this is a new command I'm giving you. Now, we read that and we might first think, wait, I know enough about the Bible that this isn't really a new command. It was something in the Old Testament that in the book of Leviticus, there's this expression that we're to, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And 
Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you. But do you notice the change in language there? Don't love each other in the same way that you love yourself, as noble as that may be. Love each other in the way that I, Jesus, Savior, dying on a cross, paying for the sin of the world, love you. That ups the ante, doesn't it? All of a sudden, we are called to a new command, to love in a way that's, that's extravagant, that's outlandish, that's certainly peculiar. A love that's very different. And if you think about the love of Jesus, you begin to see all of these markers that are so much different than the way the world loves. He loved sacrificially. That is, he gave his very life and breath for us to meet our deepest need. And very few love that way. In fact, Paul comments on that in Romans 5, doesn't he? When he says, you know, it's rare to find somebody who will, for a person they like, to lay their life down for them, let alone for someone's enemy to do that. And that that's what Jesus did on our behalf. We're called to a sacrificial love, just like our Savior. We're called to a consistent love. Jesus loves consistently. We're called to it to not wax and wane according to the seasons of life. But to love despite all our op- uh, obstacles that come our way. Um, I like to look at it this way. There are some people who choose to, to say uh, they express their love this way. Love, comma, which means love. Yeah, but here's some riders that are attached to that. And the love of Jesus is love, period. He loves at all costs, consistently. His love is also a relentless love that it pursues until the one who is being pursued surrenders. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 13 as this model of love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the love of Jesus is a comprehensive love. It reaches out to everyone. It loves and knows no stranger No one is unworthy of it. It's a love that embraces the prodigal and the elder brother. It's the love that embraces the tax man, the prostitute, the king, and the slave. It's a love that is without walls. It's a love that's that open table that calls all to feast with him, if they will. And that's what we as the peculiar community are called to and to express in the world. There's a story about a a businessman who was flown by a large company for a meeting at their expense, and they decided to do it well for him. They booked him in business class, and so he had never been privileged to ride at the front of the plane like that. And so he got on the flight, and he was delighted to discover that they provided for him as he flew in this plane gourmet brownies and cookies. And rather than wolf them down, he thought, I'm going to save these things take them with me. So he didn't know exactly where to put them, so he grabbed the air sickness bag that was in the pocket by his seat, and he stuck them in the bag and rolled it up tightly and finished out the flight. And as they were deplaning and they got to the airport, the stewardess saw him carrying the bag, and she said, sir, would you like for me to dispose of that for you? He said, no, thanks. I'm going to give this to my kids. The world really has no idea what's inside of us, do they, sometimes? 
They think they know. <laughs> they look at us and they think, okay, I know what's going on there. But there is something in us as God's peculiar people that we have this hope, this light, this grace and peace that he's poured into us that we have the opportunity to share into our world if we would just open up the bag and let his hope flood out. I want to give you a little homework for this week. It's a soul training exercise that uh, James Bryan Smith calls two by four. Uh, And it simply means that there's two things and then four things for the week. And the two is to spend two hours with God this week. And this really focuses on that first aspect, that we have been loved by a peculiar God. And so it's important for us, as I mentioned a few weeks back when we were talking about this story from which we live, to keep, to keep our minds in that story, to understand what we've been called into, what we've been given through the grace of Jesus. And so this week, would you find two hours that you can spend with God, whether it's in a full block or in 30-minute blocks or whatever it may be. And you can even count Sunday morning, next Sunday morning is part of that. If you really come and focus in and and worship, and I'm not insinuating that you don't, I'm just saying that that you will. But to, to, to find that time this week where you set aside time to really worship him for who he is to find a place to pray and to give him praise and to maybe read reflectively, to journal some things maybe down, to meditate on scripture, to, to just be with him. And then the four part of the two by four is then to, to allow yourself to be released this week into four acts of kindness for somebody around you. All these opportunities to now that love that you've more and more understood and been privileged to to let it flow out of your life. There may be some people you know right now, and they don't have to be big things. They may be big things, they may be small things, but that neighbor who needs their mow, their lawn mowed or their, needs their car washed or they just need a, a plate of warm cookies or that person that you work with or that person that you see frequently throughout your week that just needs a, a shoulder to cry on or a hug or a word of encouragement. Uh, somebody who just needs a listening ear. Somebody in your own family who needs a project completed and you do it before they ask you. Oh, that's gold when that happens. Or that person that you let in front of you in line at the store. Or that person that you let in traffic. You have traffic around here sometimes, right? You let in traffic, you let that combine or that tractor in front of you, you you let them in front of you and you don't exhibit road rage, which that's my weak spot. Be a customer to a struggling business. Simply look for those ways to express the love of God throughout this week. We've been given this hope in us that is meant to be light and salt in the world in a, in a rotting darkness. And so I, I want to encourage you this week to be peculiar. Uh, I've been peculiar a lot of my life in a lot of ways, but I need to be peculiar in that way that gives him honor and glory, that really catches the world's attention. And not just to catch their attention for attention's sake, but to get them to say this person, this church body, this 
collection of people, this chosen people has something to say. And they've pointed me to a God who has something important to tell me and to a Savior who has done something important for me. Let's pray together. Father, I I ask that we as your people would, uh, would continue to dwell in the story of what you've called us to. And that is day by day we expect hot mic. We got a hot mic. All right. Um so as I, I thought about communion meditation and, and coming to the table together to have this meal, a lot of things have run through my mind um, this week. And one of the things that is really central to my mind is thankfulness. I'm, I'm in front of you really, really thankful. I have a very thankful, full heart. Um, and, and as we went through the week, and even in this morning's Sunday school class, uh, a kind of a central theme came to my mind, which was how do we praise God and how do we do it consistently? And one of the things that we talked about in Sunday school this morning was the cycle that creates a habit. And sometimes you can create a good habit and sometimes you can create a bad habit. And that cycle involves your mind and your body. And so with the thought in mind that we're trying to create a habit of praising God, um, we, we use that metaphor, that analogy of the mind and the body, um, and we told some stories. I didn't share this story, but I had a friend in college that had a lot of habits, uh, a lot of very weird habits. He was really, really clean. Um, he never threw the box away for a pair of shoes. He'd buy a pair of shoes, he would lace them up, he'd wear them, and then he'd put them back in the box and put the paper back inside the shoe and he put the the tissue paper back on top of him and he had a shelf that was full of all of these and it was a habit he'd created he thought about it in his mind and then he fulfilled it with his body and then he did it over and over again until he couldn't take a pair of shoes off uh, without putting them back in the box they came in Um, he was so bad that when he put coat hangers and he hung his clothes up he couldn't sleep unless each one of the hangers was one finger's width from each other. So he would stand and look at his shelf of all of his box shoes, and then he would put his fingers in all of these coat hangers so that they would be perfectly spaced apart. And it became the habit that he had done. He thought about it in his mind. He fulfilled it with his body. And it became a daily habit. And so... You know, that might not have been the most healthy habit for him to have. Uh, He was just uncontrollable with it. I remember uh, one time somebody went in there after he had gone to bed and had moved those hangers so that they were all together on one side. And then he woke up in a panic in the morning because he realized that they weren't done perfectly. But with that thought in mind of of developing a habit... uh, I, I want to challenge myself and in turn challenge all of you to develop a habit of praising God. Think about it in your mind. 
and fulfill it with your body. Um, I'm so thankful for this, this season of struggle that our church has gone through because we've seen so many God miracles. There's no other way uh, to describe them. We've got Ethan sitting right in front of me that is a God miracle. Um, Jace is running around and is our Iron Man. He's got, he, that's a God miracle. And Ashley's dad, Kevin, um, could have easily died on that roof, but he didn't. That's a God miracle. Um, yeah, I had a, my aunt not too long ago went in and she had bypass surgery and they wouldn't have caught it unless she was going to go in for a different procedure and they did a stress test and they that was a God miracle that they found that she was had that blockage and they saved her life because of it. So in these times of struggle, what I would like to take away as we come together and as we make a habit of eating together with God. The other thing that came to my mind is I want this to be a banquet praising God, but what God wants to do is sit with us and eat with us and share this with us. So let's frame our minds. I'd like to read the last Psalms, 150. Um, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heaven. Praise Him for His mighty works. Praise Him uh, for His unequaled greatness. Praise Him with the blast of the ram's horn. Praise Him with the lyre and the harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with strings and flutes. Praise Him with the crash of cymbals. Praise Him loud with, with clanging cymbals. Let everything that breathes sing praise to the Lord. So as we come to the table together, I would like to develop a habit of loudly, crazily, insanely praising God for the things that he's done for us and recognizing those moments and and being so thankful that we have God walking and carrying us uh, together. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to the table and we prepare to eat this meal with you, we come with thankful hearts that you have shown miracle after miracle after miracle to this family to this church. I pray to thank you for a time that there can be no doubt that you are with us and that you have carried us. That there is no doubt that you have worked by your hands miracles uh, and we want to praise you for those. Let us eat together. Let us be strengthened by this meal. And, and we pray that you would strengthen us for the week to come, that we could share these great things that you have done. In your name we pray. Amen.